The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I wonder if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and I want to read Psalm 51. Very famous psalm, of course, uh, ascribed to David when Nathan the prophet, we're told in the heading, went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And for those of us from a Free Church of Scotland background, it's difficult to read those words without wanting to sing them from the 1650 Psalter to the tune St. Kilda which if you've never experienced, you need to experience that because never were words and tunes so beautifully meshed together in Christian worship. I want to talk very briefly today about the one thing that I think Westminster does very badly. It's the last, one of the last chapels of the year. Some of you will be going on to positions of Christian leadership and service in the coming year. And one of the things that I think Westminster does not do well. It does not impart a vision of God's holiness to its students. And I think that an understanding of God's holiness lies at the very heart of the Christian life. 
is indeed, I think, the thing that separates pre-modern theology from modern theology. Why is it that when I read Augustine or Athanasius, Gregory Nazianzus, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, John Owen, Martin Luther, why is it when I read these people, there is a different feel to what they say, as well as a different content? I think it is the fact that they are overwhelmed by a vision of God's holiness. I had the pleasure and the privilege last week of teaching in two seminaries in Grand Rapids. I spent some of the week teaching at Puritan and Reformed Theological Seminary, and I spent some of the week teaching at Calvin Theological Seminary. It was a fun week because part of the week I found myself on the far left of the theological spectrum. The other part of the week I found myself on the far right of the theological spectrum. One of the issues that I addressed in those classes was the issue of practical atheism. I was brought in to speak on the 17th century notion of practical atheism. When you use the term atheism in the 17th century, what do you mean? You don't mean somebody who denies the existence of God. That's not the issue in the 17th century. Nobody denies the existence of God. Spinoza, of course, was known as an atheist in the 17th century. And in later time, he was known as a man who's drunk on God. Because the whole notion of atheism shifts between the 17th century and today. What is an atheist in the 17th century? An atheist is somebody who denies one or more of the attributes of God and who lives as if that attribute does not exist. And I would suggest to you that if you live your life with no concept of God's holiness, I don't care how orthodox you are. I don't care how good you are at exegesis. You are a practical atheist by 17th century standards. Practical atheism is the practical denial of one or more of the great attributes of God. If you read the Old Testament, nothing so pervades the teaching and the narratives of the Old Testament as the holiness of God. And it is a fearsome thing and an awesome thing. And I want to ask you this morning, does that fear of God and does that awe of God pervade the way you think about God and the way you live your life? And I would suggest to you that if it does not do so, you stand no chance of surviving in whatever ministry or leadership position you find yourself in in the coming years. I'm going to list here of things that I think fall away if you have no concept of the holiness of God, if there is no real fear of God in your heart. And these come out in no particular order, but I was thinking... Uh, back, Richard Baxter, great Puritan, great preacher, not a great theologian, unfortunately. But Richard Baxter always say when he preached, he preached as a dying man to dying men. Helmut Thielicker in the war, when he was preaching during the Blitz, I think, of Hamburg, you say, every night I got up to preach, I was conscious that people who were there tonight might be killed in the bombing raids before next Sunday. So what I said to those people had to be all that I wanted to say to them that day. And what I have here is a litany of things that I want to say to you about the importance of the holiness of God. The first thing, if you have no concept of the holiness of God, 
if that concept does not pervade the way you think about him and the way you live your life, then you will sit in judgment on the word of God. What do I mean by that? When you go to church on Sunday and your minister preaches, what is your attitude? What is your attitude? And this temptation, I think, will be particularly strong for somebody with a seminary education. Are you there to hear God speaking through the minister or are you there to evaluate the minister's sermon? Now, we are Protestants and everything our minister says to us is to be tried and tested by Scripture. That is a good and proper principle. But what is your attitude in approaching the preaching of word on Sunday? Do you sit in judgment on it? Or do you sit under its judgment? If you have no concept of the holiness of God, if you have no fear of the one who speaks to you through his word on a Sunday, you will sit in judgment on the word. And one day, God will sit in judgment on you. And to put it in almost trivial terms, you will lose. You will lose in that competition. So the first thing to think of, what is your attitude when you come and sit under the word on a Sunday? Do you sit in judgment on the word? Or do you know that the word sits in judgment on you? Secondly, perhaps unusual this one, I would suggest if you have no concept of the holiness of God, you will have no sense of humor. How does Luther survive in the Reformation? Luther survives in the Reformation because he's able to laugh at his enemies and laugh at himself. Now, some people would say, well, that just shows what a trivial person he was. Luther was a man who lived under a death sentence for most of his life. Luther was a man who couldn't safely travel outside of his town because of the stand he had taken. How dare you sit in judgment of Luther and say he was a trivial man because of the jokes he told and the language he used? Luther was not a trivial man. Luther was a man crushed, one might say, by his vision of the holiness of God. And because he had this all-surpassing, all-encompassing vision of God's holiness, he knew that everything he said and did was to an extent absurd. And he knew that everything his enemies said and did was to an extent absurd. Creaturely pretensions worth nothing in comparison with the greatness and the holiness of God. If you don't have a sense of God's holiness... You will take yourself too seriously. If you take yourself too seriously, you will have no sense of humor, and you will be terribly hurt and damaged when people say things about you. Some of you are going out into the ministry. I'm assuming that within a couple of months of your ministry, some of your congregation will start blogging about your sermons. And somebody's going to bring it to your attention. And then you're going to be on the receiving end. And if you take yourself too seriously, that is going to be a terribly painful, if not ministry-ending experience for you. Only if you know how absurd you are and how absurd your enemies are because of your overwhelming sense of God's greatness and holiness will you survive. Third thing, if you have no sense of God's holiness, you will have no backbone. We have a phrase in, in, in Britain and Mr. Finlayson challenged me to use this in my sermon this morning. We have a phrase that, well, so-and-so, he's got to go and get himself some trousers. He's got to become somebody with a backbone. 
If you do not fear God, you will always fear men. Or women. Let's not uh, be sexist here. You will always fear men and women. You will always fear those around you. There will come moments in your ministry when you have to stand against everybody. And you will not be able to do that unless your fear of God is greater than your fear of the men and women who are around you. And you will only be able to do that if you have a sense and an understanding of God's holiness. And I think closely related to that, and this is perhaps a more subtle point, and it goes back to the practical atheism thing I was talking about at the start. If you have no sense of God's holiness, no sense of his otherness, no sense of his sovereign difference from you, no sense of the fact that he is an awesome and fearsome person, yes, you call him father, but you don't call him dad. You don't call him the old man. You fear him and call him father. If you have no sense of the awesome and fearsome holiness of God, then you will absolutize yourself. You will ultimately end up making God in your own image. And what I think one of the sort of more subtle results of that is, you will absolutize yourself and you will absolutize your relation to those around us, those around you. And that will have a significant impact on your understanding of truth. Truth will become a matter of taste. Not, as Francis Schaeffer would have said, true truth. You begin to determine the truth by looking at whether so-and-so's behavior is tasteful or not. I am continually amazed these days at how little it takes to be labeled intolerant. And as the years go by, it takes less and less and less. You can't talk about people living in sin anymore. Even Christians, we cringe at that. Why do we cringe at that? Because the society of taste has so permeated the way we think. People live together. They don't live in sin. They have partners, not partners in fornication. It's a loss of the sense of God's holiness in society and as individuals has meant that truth has slowly but surely deteriorated into a matter of taste. I spent eight and a half years of my life working at two uh, liberal universities, and I got on very well there. I had a great time and have good liberal friends in these universities, and they were really nice people. They were really nice and pleasant people. Conservative evangelical types, much more unpleasant. Why are they much more unpleasant? Because for the good ones, truth matters. And where truth matters, it's not simply a matter of taste. It's a matter of holding a position because it is more fearsome to cross God than it is to cross the people around you. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the horrors and terrors of hell? When was the last time your minister really ripped into the congregation? about sin and the holiness of God? When was the last time you feared God? Isaiah 66. This is the one I respect, the one who trembles at my word. When was the last time you read your Bible and trembled at the word of God that is there? This is not just some collection of sayings. 
This is not something that we sit in judgment of. This is something we tremble at when we read. So I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. In some ways, I'm giving you all the bad news. You know the good news. I don't have to tell you the good news. But I want to tell you the bad news. And the bad news is God is awesome and terrible and holy. And he will come in judgment at some point. And the lower view you have of God's holiness, the higher view you will have of yourself, and the lower view you will have of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a holy God. As you graduate from this place, I trust that you will take that message out, not only into the pulpits and the churches, but also into the, word it's, uh, into the world itself. Let us close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, we come before you to acknowledge your awesomeness and your holiness and to confess, Lord, that we are so familiar with your word. We are so familiar with you that there are times, many times, when we have lost, we lose our sense of awe and wonder at your presence. Lord, we pray that you would take your word and apply it with a vengeance to our heart that you would make us acutely sensitive, Lord, not only to the sin in the world around us, but to the sin that crouches at our own door. Lord, we rejoice in your fatherly love, but we confess that we have often used that as an excuse for disrespect, for triviality. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts a deep, and abiding sense of your awesome holiness, that we would never presume upon you, but would rather, Lord, acknowledge that only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself made man, only in and through him can we approach you, for you are indeed such a holy God. You cannot abide the presence of evil and sin. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.